Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, Best Ever listeners, and welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm your host for today, Paul Mueller, and New Year's Eve is finally here. And since we're on the doorstep of 2024, it's time for the last episode in our five-part Best of 2023 series. Today, we're going to highlight the best clips, stories, and advice from the co-founder of Ashcroft Capital, also the founder of Best Ever CRE and the creator of the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever show, the one and only Joe Fairless. From the Best Ever Conference, to the Best Ever Book Club, to the Cincinnati Meetup, to the podcast itself, Joe has shared a tremendous amount of knowledge and experience with the Best Ever community in 2023. In this episode, we'll feature clips of Joe reliving his worst ever deal, looking back on the biggest mistakes he's made during his journey to $2.7 billion in assets under management, and much more. We'll start back in the spring, when Joe headlined the Best Ever Conference in Salt Lake City. He was interviewed by Matt Faircloth and Andrew Cushman, and in that chat, which we aired as a two-part series on the Best Ever Show, you can find the link to those in the show notes, Joe walked us through his first ever, which was also his worst ever, deal. And this deal had everything, from floods and bedbugs, to difficult conversations with investors, to someone literally spitting in Joe's face. I'm telling you, if you haven't heard this story before, please give it a listen. It's as informative and inspiring as it is entertaining. I'll let Joe tell the whole story. I would like to follow up on that first deal for a minute. If I recall right, that deal lost money, correct? Lost money, yeah. And somehow you are still here today with 12,000 units. You've scaled. Clearly you moved past Mm. that. How did you do that? How does someone in the audience who maybe does a bad deal or bought something with the wrong debt last year, how do they not let that stop them from continuing to grow? Well, the free answer to that question is to piggyback. There are maybe folks here, and I've been in this boat before, that there is a fear of moving forward because of the fear of losing money, because yeah. of the fear of making a mistake. So just addressing this to the audience here, that this man's not perfect. There's been mistakes made by Joe, by myself, by Andrew. And if you allow the fear of moving forward because I don't want to make a mistake, you'll end up not going anywhere. That's right. right. So yeah, yeah, so yeah. tell us more about the deal or if you want to comment on that as well. Too. Yeah, I agree. Well, a little bit about the deal for context and I'll, I'll tell you how I 
Uh, what not to do. Emo- yeah, what not to do <laughs> and how to emotionally navigate it as best you can based on what I learned. So the deal is a master lease with option to purchase. I went from four single-family homes to a 168-unit apartment community in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I had 12 investors. It was a $1.2 million raise. I raised 843000 from those 12 investors. The difference between one2 and eight forty-three was the brokers put in their commissions, and I think they brought in an investor or two that they knew through an entity. And I'll tell you the specifics of it, but I'll say right now that everything was my fault. Ultimately, it, mm. it was on me. And it was nobody else's responsibility but mine that if I was not aware of certain things, well, that's on me. So the deal was going back to I didn't know value-add investing. So it looked on paper that the property cash flowed. is 95% occupied in a growing area of Cincinnati, on the east side of Cincinnati, and Amelia, for anyone who's familiar with Cincinnati. And I thought, okay, well... Cash flowing deal, I can get in at a relatively small amount relative to the overall value of the property. And I thought I could raise 500000 at a time, but I was able to raise 843000 So I was talking to the owner while we were doing walkthroughs, and he said, Joe, if you want it to be 100% occupied, we can make it 100% occupied before close. I'm like, well, that is so nice of you. Thank you. Hey, you, you want to move in? This, right, is, what, yeah, this yeah. is what apartment owners right, are right. like, right? That's, sure. This is awesome. Good what a, what a, well, hey. I should have been doing this a long time. No problem. So I said, yes, please. That would be great. <laughs> uh, well, well, it turns out that there were a lot of down units, a lot of units that weren't rent ready. Mm. And he was literally moving people from the street being homeless into these units and these homeless people did not care about the quality of the unit they just want a roof over their head understandably so probably didn't um, care about paying the rent either though that too yeah they didn't care about paying the rent that's called not good screening practices <laughs> yes so i closed on it without looking at all these down units there are about 18 of them i closed on it without looking at any of these down units and they didn't pay rent, shockingly. Mm. So we went through the eviction process, and not only did we go through the eviction process, but, well, now you've got to make ready all these down units. And one of them, literally, you go in with the safety suit, with the face mask and oh, everything. Wow. Multiple dead rodents and other creatures that used to be living that were no longer living for a very long time. Mm. And I was saying this morning, the owner was spraying something on his legs prior to going into the units and I was like that's strange but I didn't think anything of it can anyone guess non-VIP people heard this morning anyone guess what he was spraying huh bed bugs yeah he was spraying like rubbing alcohol on his legs so the bed bugs wouldn't latch onto him as they're walking through the units we had major bed bug infestation apparently so we found the bed bugs in the due diligence, but we didn't know how extensive it was. We looked at the units initially, but my own fault, I got tricked on that when we closed. And most importantly, I didn't listen to multiple property managers prior to closing. There was a performer that was put in place. I really wanted to do my first deal. And I spoke to two property management groups in Cincinnati, and they both said, your numbers aren't realistic. Mm. And instead mm. of saying, hmm, they might have something, I went to a third property managing company and I said, yeah, this could work. <laughs> so, all right, that's what I wanted to hear. I closed and there was no money in the reserves. And when I closed and the mortgage broker 
said, well, there's 21,000 needed for insurance at close. I was like, I wasn't expecting that. So I ended up passing out some and eventually all of my 401k I had through my company that I'd saved and putting it right out of the gate, day one, right out of the mm -hmm. gate. So I learned a lot of lessons. And when the property lost money, I had 12 conversations with the investors. And I said, we lost money. My commitment to you is I will pay you back plus, well, actually, yes, I did say this initially. I said, I will pay you back plus 14% annualized return out of my own pocket. I don't know how long it's going to take, but I'll do it. And conversations, as you can imagine, went from, they didn't say it, but I know they're thinking that's BS, to, hey, I really appreciate it, but we'll just wait and see. And it took about a year and a half, maybe two years, I don't quite remember, but I paid them all back plus 14% out of my own pocket. And I realized from that experience, got to have the money, got to have a deal, got to be able to execute. I'm good at the money part, but the deal and the execution, not my area of expertise. And you're swimming with sharks when we get into this level and you better bring a decade plus of experience or at least have people who you can consult with that will help you because you're going to run across people who have more experience or more savvy and have seen more things than you have. And it's necessary to have those allies that you can combat that with. So from an emotional and mental standpoint, I remember one day my bank account after we closed was $1,000. And I had 100000 in credit card debt. The property management company, I owed their vendors because we were delaying payment on vendors. So I had to pay back the vendors. I had to do workarounds. I met with one emergency restoration company because we had flooding at the property. I met with them multiple times at their office. And I had to talk to them about how I couldn't pay them everything now, but I'll get on a payment plan. It was crazy. One day in the middle of the storm, we had another flood at the property. I mean, I'd always be looking at the weather app to see when we were going to get rain. And it was just such a dreadful experience, just the anticipation of rain coming down from the sky. And it rains a lot in Cincinnati, especially that year. <laughs> and I, I would look at the app like, oh, man, it's going to rain. And one morning after a rainstorm, sure enough, we had a lot of units flooded. And we had the restoration come out. They said, this bill is going to be $40,000. I did not have $40,000. That was one. This all happened before 10 a.m., by the way. So I got a bill for $40,000. I was working at the time. So I met my business partner, Frank, and we had started Ashcroft while still trying to solve this issue. And we were working on our first or second deal at the time. And we were in the funding process. One of our investors wired money to Africa instead of to our escrow account. Turns out he got hacked, $100,000 investment. So we ended up paying that back over time just because it was not our fault his email got hacked, but we ended up paying him back because who knows what type of liabilities involved there. And then on top of that, I was like, okay, I've got to go run. I've got to go get some exercise, get away from this. We were renting an apartment at the time in Cincinnati. I take 10 steps out of the apartment, I'm staying on the sidewalk, I see this woman walking towards me, and she's walking kind of funky, like off a little bit for 10 a.m. in the morning. And I look at her, I say, good morning, and she spits in my face. 
Jesus. <laughs> spits in my face. I'm like, so I called the FBI too that morning about the wire funds oh being lost. So called the FBI, got spit in my face and got a $40,000 bill all before 10 a.m. on that day. So, so the best ever guy had his worst day ever. Yeah, worst right. Right. Yeah. Worst so, day and, ever. and I called 911 right. about that lady. So it was all sorts of stuff oh, going man. on. And so how do you go past it? It's something that you've got to remember. It's something that you've got to hold dear. So I document. I have a daily journal. And mm -hmm. I document. I can go back and I can reference that day. What was I experiencing? What was I going through? And any time I start getting complacent, because it's natural. You make a lot of money, complacency can seep in. I go back in that journal, I'm like, holy shit, I was getting spit on, I was calling the FBI, I was calling 911, and I was getting bills I couldn't pay all in one day before 10 a.m. I'm not going to go back to that place. I won't allow <laughs> no. it. That was some awesome real-life detail that you don't often get to hear. But there's one thing that you said that I think for everyone listening is probably the most key. And it's not don't make mistakes because mistakes and failures are human nature. Look at Chernobyl or the Hindenburg or almost any Nicolas Cage movie. But the thing, <laughs> the thing that you said was everything was my fault. Whether or not that's actually mm -hmm. true or not doesn't matter. I bet when you had those 12 investor calls, you didn't blame anybody else. You mm -hmm. said, hey, I screwed up. I'm going to pay you back. And you took ownership for it. The $100,000 wire that went to Africa, clearly not your fault. But you treated it as if it was. And then to me, that's probably one of the biggest reasons that you're at 12,000 units today. Is yeah. And that early failure didn't stop you. So kudos to you. That's extreme awesome. ownership. Yeah, yeah, extreme you probably ownership. asked yourself what you had done to the lady to make her spit you in the face. <laughs> How did I contribute to that? That well? one wasn't <laughs> I didn't that's deserve to spit in the face. Maybe but, your breath was bad that <laughs> yeah, right. Maybe, maybe. So before we move on, what was the exit point? For that deal, just to close that loop, so you've got four yeah, units we, and bed bugs. Blah, 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 we, we at some point, I think we we had it under contract for six point three or something, and I ended up selling for five point two mm. to a group. And one interesting thing, which could be relevant to anyone who is having challenges with the current interest rates and talking to investors, and if you need to pause distributions or sell or whatever, during that time with that property. Prior to it getting really bad, one or two groups reach out and say, hey, we'd like to buy this property. Mm. And it was more of a creative structure that they were bringing to the table, but it still would have worked. But it wouldn't have hit the projected returns that I wanted for the investors, but it would have been profitable. Mm. And I said no, because I didn't want to go back to investors and say, we're not going to hit what we projected. And I was disillusioned at the time. I didn't really understand what reality was. I thought that things were going to get better. And I was living at the property. Did I mention that? I was living at the property? No. no. Yeah, I moved That's from, why they spent I moved from New York. Yeah, I, yeah. I moved from New York City. <laughs> well, I was living with my girlfriend, now my wife at the time, at that, a different apartment. But yeah, okay. once I met her, I moved in with her. <laughs> but I, I was living at the property for, I don't know how long, six months, eight months. I, I'm not exactly sure. But I was living in the model unit. I moved from New York City to Cincinnati uh, to try and turn it around. I'd been living in New York City for 10 years, but I moved from New York City to Cincinnati. I moved in the model unit, and I would pack up all my stuff in the morning at 7.30 a.m., and I would go walk to the leasing office, and I would go show the model unit, the place I was living, to prospective residents. One day I had my toothbrush out, and they're like, is someone living here? I'm like, no, 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 it could be your toothbrush. I mean, you I, I was, I, I had a, a Toyota Corolla at the time and I'd go up to Lowe's and I'd get the asphalt that you use to fill potholes and I'd put it in the trunk of my Toyota Corolla with the shovel and I'd be filling potholes. 
I was doing whatever it took. But a good lesson there is it wasn't enough. Mm. I was all in, but it wasn't enough because I wasn't capitalized properly and I went in with a bad business plan. But even if we try to do everything we can, it might not be enough. So cut your losses. And what Matthew McConaughey says in a keynote, don't leave crumbs. Don't do things in life where you're going to have to look over your shoulder and be like, oh, I hope that person doesn't show up at the conference. I've got one of the investors in that first deal here. So hard decisions have to be made in business. Do it in a way that doesn't leave you looking over your shoulder, hoping that you don't come across those people again. And that was a big thing that I did, and I'm proud of how I handled it. Mm. That's some solid it's quick, advice. I, I would just take a moment, guys. A quick round of press for Joe for getting real about that, getting vulnerable, and also for doing the right thing by your investors. So there's not enough reality and vulnerability in this business. If you look on Facebook, all people do in this business is go on vacation, go to conferences, and close deals. But it's good to have somebody here that's willing to tell you guys the other side of this business that you don't see on Facebook. So thank you. Later in that same conversation, Joe went on to discuss how he and his partner scaled Ashcroft Capital to its eventual 12,000 units and $2.7 billion in assets under management, including the importance of vertical integration and the nuances of raising capital. Some folks think that businesses grow on this linear line. I start at zero and I grow to 12,000 and here we go. It just shows just like this and I add 1,000 units a year and off we go, right? But we know the reality of that is it's not. It's this jagged line where you end up plateauing for a little bit and there's a concept I came up with, just glass ceilings and breakthroughs. Business can grow to a point where you plateau and then a thing needs to get adjusted to take things to the next level. So. Fast forward, you've met Frank, you guys are now doing better deals and coming in better capitalized and making the right decisions. And I think focusing on Dallas as your market after yeah. Cincinnati, right? What was a glass ceiling that you recall Ashcroft hitting earlier in the game that maybe stunted growth a little bit? Let's talk about what that was and then what you did to move beyond. Well, Frank's incredibly talented. So we had good deal flow early on, but I couldn't keep up with it. So we could have purchased more deals early mm -hmm. on if I was able to be better at mm -hmm. bringing the capital to our deals. So that was one, and how we solve for that was, it's just time. Yeah. Doing things consistently, and we can get into specifics of you know, mm -hmm. certain things that have been helpful, but really number one way we get investors is through referrals and word of mouth. Word of mm -hmm. mouth has the highest likelihood of someone converting into an investor than anything else. So that would be the first thing I think of. And then also when we got to about, I want to say 7,000 units, we realized that the third party property management companies yeah. weren't operating as well as we could likely operate. Mm -hmm. And Frank spearheaded that. I did not. Mm -hmm. But he built out the property management business. So we have our own in-house property management company, Birchstone Residential. And they do not manage anyone else's properties other than our properties. Mm -hmm. And when we're able to do that, it eliminates a lot of the red tape that's involved, as well as any potential price gouging that could take place with a mm -hmm. third-party property management company. So integrating property management, integrating construction, buying our supplies overseas to isolate the variable of cost going up. We just buy all of them at once, ship them to a warehouse that we lease in Dallas. We have a team that does renovation kits and those renovation kits then get shipped out to each of the apartments. So it's like a little mini Amazon warehouse. So 
having vertical integration has been really beneficial and helped us scale and be more efficient, which also helps us win more deals because we're able to not be at risk of price increases for supplies, for example, because we've already bought them. We already know what they are. Uh, so th those are a couple things that come to mind. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned about converting investors and your best source is referrals, word of mouth, that kind of input. I think one of the challenges, even more so in today's market than a few years ago, is understanding how much you can raise. So you mentioned you thought you could raise 500, you ended up at 843. We just completed a raise where it was one of the bigger ones we've ever tried. I candidly wasn't sure if we were gonna be able to hit it or not, and it sold out pretty quickly, but for any of us who are attempting mm -hmm. a raise in this environment where things have changed, people are a little more cautious, a little more reticent to invest or do things, a lot of people just wanna sit on the sidelines. For both large and small, syndicators or sponsors, how do you recommend we gauge how much we can go out and raise? In the beginning, I tell people, if you're doing your first deal and you need a million, get commitments for two million. Absolutely. You know? What yeah. would you say? It depends on where you're at in your journey. If you are starting out, and we're talking about your immediate network, people have known you for a very long time, then I've seen about a 20% conversion rate from those individuals. The challenge is, as you continue to scale and you do more deals, you'll need to expand outside of that immediate circle. And that's where you get down to a conversion rate of 5 to 10% mm -hmm. of the individuals that are in your database will actually be investing with you. The three main variables that will determine if someone invests with you or not, or the likelihood of them investing with you, one is how well do they know you, two is how well do they know real estate, and three is how well do they know the markets that you're investing in. I found that if they know you and they trust you and they like you and they are familiar with real estate and they understand the high level mechanics of it and if they know the market that you're investing in, that will increase tremendously the conversion rate that you have with mm. your investors. So. What you can do with that information is being intentional about where you go and how you approach finding new investors. I'll use Bigger Pockets as an example. It's not really much of a lead source for us now, but in the early days it was because I was pretty active on Bigger Pockets. So people knew me already, mm. and people were there to talk real estate. <laughs> so checks that box. And then the market, we always invest in larger markets, so that's not really a challenge for us. But that's an example of, generally speaking, a source that checks those boxes and will help with higher conversion rate than, say, a physician's conference. Mm -hmm. A physician's conference, a lot of high net worth individuals, but they might not know you. If they don't know you, that's a challenge. You're having to immediately establish rapport. They might not know real estate, depending on their background. They may or may not know the market. So. It's a great conference to attend, and it's a great conference to start establishing those relationships, but then the follow-up becomes paramount, as it is with any relationship, but those are the three things that will help you shortcut things and get a higher conversion rate. We'll get back to the show with a first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. 
Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital's never missed a preferred payment, never lost an LP's investment, and never called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital is currently raising capital for a fund designed for accredited investors targeting a 15 to 20% IRR and a 2 to 2.5x equity multiple to its investors over a three to five year hold period. If you're an accredited investor and you want to learn more about multifamily investment opportunities with BAM Capital, visit capital.thebamcompanies.com. Again, that's capital.thebamcompanies.com. Those clips are from the Best Ever Conference. And if you can believe it, we're only a few months away from the next Best Ever Conference, April 9th through 12th in Salt Lake City, Utah. If you haven't secured your spot yet, head over to besteverconference.com and use the code BEC2024 to get 15% off or click the link in the show notes. Prices will go up on January 5th, so you definitely don't want to miss out. For our next excerpt, we'll go back to September's Cincinnati Meetup, where Joe and Ash Patel joined fellow Best Ever host Slocum Reed to discuss the biggest mistakes they've made in their investing journeys. Here is Joe laying out his four biggest mistakes, some of which obviously relate to that first ever, worst ever deal in Cincinnati. The first deal I did in Cincinnati, I went from four single family homes, I was living in New York City, and I raised money for a 168 unit apartment community in Amelia, Ohio. Everyone familiar with where Amelia is? All right, so path of progress, good area for growth, but I messed it all up on the execution front. I attempted to do all the aspects of the deal. I do apartment buildings. There are three components to apartment buildings. You got to find the deal. You got to have the money to buy the deal and you have to execute. Those are the three components. And I was attempting to play at the highest level for all three of those categories. And I realized that I have a unique skill set. I'm pretty good at some things. I'm average at others and I'm bad at other things. And by attempting to do all those three categories, I was doing my investors a disservice and ultimately myself and the whole transaction a disservice. Made a lot of mistakes on it. That could be a whole nother podcast. I'm sure I've done a podcast on this show about it. The lesson I learned from that deal is that I'm not enough. And it's a humbling thing to say, but I am not enough because I moved from New York City and I lived in the model unit of this apartment building. I would wake up in the morning, I would walk to the leasing office and I would speak to prospective renters and then I would show them this model unit that I was living in. And I would go to Home Depot after the day is over and I would buy asphalt, whatever it's called. It's not te- I don't know what it's technically called, but you, it fills potholes. So I put it in the trunk of my Toyota Corolla and I'd scoop it all out after the day is over and I'd just go fill potholes in the property. And I would go to Kroger Marketplace in Amelia. I think it's the third largest marketplace in Ohio, which was impressive. One of the things that attracted me to the area. And I would buy cleaning supplies and I clean the units too. So I was very hands-on, not as hands-on as Gaston over here. If you ever hear (laughs) his story, he's the man with that stuff. He is enough. I am not enough. (laughs) I could not pull it off. And once I realized that I decided, okay, I need to focus on what I'm really good at. 
and I need to double down on my unique skill set. And so a takeaway is when we venture into a business, whether it's residential or whether it's apartments or commercial, identify what are the successful skill sets required to thrive and then look ourselves in the mirror and say, which ones of those things do I have? And then which ones don't I have? And then find the right business partners, vendors, or team members to fill those skill sets. So my second is lack of situational awareness. You mentioned interest rates. Interest rates are higher now than they were. And we're doing floating loans during a time of historically low interest rates. If I could go back, I would not do floating loans. I would do fixed loans. And fortunately, all of our deals have rate caps. So we're capped out at a certain interest rate. But it still makes the deal eat up cash flow a lot faster because you're capped out at a higher interest rate. Plus, when you have to save up money for a new rate cap, you're saving up money for a new rate cap at today's prices, not whenever you purchased it. So overall, it's an expensive endeavor. So the second mistake certainly is having better situational awareness for what's taking place right now historically with the context of historically and and seeing where the interest rates are. Interest rates aren't that high right now historically. They're high compared to where they were, but they're not that high right now, relatively speaking. Anyone who's investing in the 80s, I wasn't, but anyone who's investing in the 80s, I see some hedge nodding. Yeah, they were really high back then, I think close to 20 or so. I read the Wall Street Journal a lot more now. (laughs) And also having conversations with others in the industry and acting on things and course correcting proactively a bit more than we were before. For anyone who thinks that now's not a good time, it's a weak excuse because there's always opportunity to buy cash-flowing deals that you can add value to, whether it's apartments, whether it's retail office, etc. My third point is previously on my first deal is that I didn't speak to investors early on about the challenges of that property. And I used to think, oh, we'll get occupancy up and then I'm going to move there, which I did. And I'll get all the parking lot fixed and I'll be on site and I'll lease things up and I'll do all sorts of things. Well, essentially I was delaying the pain and that was a mistake. I kept thinking, oh, well, eventually it will get better and I'll throw myself into it. But I delayed what I needed to address then and there. And I knew I needed to address it then and there in the back of my mind, at least. But I didn't. I kept trying to push it, push it. I should have sold the property about a year and a half prior to that. But I didn't because I kept thinking I'd actually sell for a profit. So since that first property, I don't delay the pain anymore. But that was a mistake that I made. And what I recommend, we're all going to go through crazy stuff with deals, right? Who's had a deal that at minimum hasn't gone according to plan? A lot of us are all-stars then. Every deal has gone according to the plan. <laughs> Let me know if you need investors. I will happily invest with you. <laughs> but the suggestion I have for you when you go through a deal that doesn't go according to plan or if it goes really bad is to make that a scar. Some people get tattoos of things they want to remember forever. Make that a scar by journaling about it and documenting it. 
I got a freaking deck of cards with the logo of the property in Cincinnati. I hated that thing, but I love that thing. Like, <laughs> I have a deck of cards made from Walgreens with the sign of that property because I won't go back there. Mentally, physically, like yeah. <laughs> figuratively <laughs> speaking. Yeah, figuratively yeah. speaking, yeah. yeah. I won't even go to the east side. No, I do go to the east side. I go through Amelia all the time. But that is key because as human beings, we want to generally go to the path of least resistance. That's how we have survived and that's how we've thrived. And we tend to forget how freaking painful something was. And even if it was ultimately an empowering experience, which usually those things are, when we go through challenges, usually... We say at the end of it, that sucked, but I'm glad I went through it. So we start diminishing the pain that we're actually in. So documented in a journal. I do a daily journal. I've been doing a daily journal since June of 2015. Daily. I miss maybe 15 days a year. June of 2015. I can go back and I can read what was happening on that day. And it's great because it helps keep an edge Whenever you go through something like that, it helps you remind yourself, man, that sucked not going back there. Because there's a tendency, as things go well, to get a little soft, to get a little complacent. And keep some memento of that experience top of mind. My fourth one is very similar. My mistake was, well, I'll ask a question. Who here works from home? Yeah, now we're getting some audience participation. Okay. Well, a lot of you work from home. I also... Work from home. We have an office in New York City. We have an office in Dallas. But I work from home, and the team members who I oversee, marketing, investor relations, investor services, they all work remote. As a result of that, sometimes it gets a little lonely working from home, right? Just sitting there and distracting too, if you have family members who are there. And the mistake that I made is that I wasn't intentional about building a peer group that I spoke to consistently. Now I do. Now every Tuesday I speak with Osh and every Tuesday I speak with one other person. And both people are performing at very high levels and it's partially for accountability. It's partially for building out a friendship even more. And it's fun. Our families go on vacations together and we do all sorts of stuff. So it's more enjoyable to intentionally build out a peer group and have those conversations consistently. And that's the key consistently. I would much rather have three really good friends I speak to consistently than 10 acquaintances. I heard a yup. That's the first yup I've heard all night. Yeah. Like, yeah. Preach. So I'd say that is something to be intentional about. And it's elevated my game. I also, as a result of being intentional about it now, joined the mastermind, and now I am building friendships, and that's how I met the other gentlemen that I speak to weekly. It's awesome to be able to talk to people who also are not in your industry. Neither one of the individuals buy multifamily that I have calls with on Tuesdays, because I'm not looking for industry advice. I'm looking to talk more macro level, all the areas of life, professional challenges, personal stuff, fitness health, all that stuff. So that would be an area that I was inconsistent on initially, but now I am consistent. One of the new features we've introduced in 2023 at Best Ever CRE is the Best Ever Book Club, hosted by myself and Joe Fairless. 
If you'd like to join, you can go to bebookclub.com or click the link in the show notes. Our first meetup was in July, and we read The Wealthy Gardener by John Soferick. Joe had a couple of key takeaways that I think will resonate with you, as they did me. One thought that I've had recently is right now we're living in a temporary moment, but it has permanent consequences. That's a quote from me. I thought of that in the shower two days ago. I was thinking of good ideas and bad ideas, and I think that was a good idea. We live in temporary moments, but they have permanent consequences. So it's reassuring because this too shall pass, but while we're in the middle of it, what actions are we taking to either set us up for success in the future or put us on a different path. And in the book, the author writes about the discomfort bridge and he references someone else who came up with it. I forget who came up with it, but he references in the book and I didn't come across it. And the discomfort bridge is walking into discomforts and temporary inconveniences. And we end up crossing the bridge one way or the other. We end up crossing the bridge but the change remains having had to go across that bridge. So really, he talks about we're either going to step into growth or step back to where we are currently. And that's something that is not discussed enough, I don't think. So it was nice to read about. And it's something that it's quite frankly comforting, in my opinion, because life is full of challenges and we should expect it to be full of challenges. And when we embrace that and we know that, hey, this challenge is going to pass, we're going to have some good stuff coming up. But what are we doing in this moment during the challenge that will either give us good consequences or bad consequences? So those are some things that came to mind. What's the most important advice to you specifically in your role as an apartment syndicator? Here's the quote from the book. Remember, behind outward achievements, we too often fail to observe the human being, alone and obscure, working in the face of uncertainty, propelled only by an inner ambition with the demands of a family and a full life who just made time to do the gritty work. We live in an instant gratification culture. We live in a culture that people bounce from thing to thing because there's so many different shiny objects competing for their time. Most of those shiny objects are insignificant and meaningless. And when we make time to do the gritty work consistently, day in, day out, then that is the best way to yield big time results. I've seen it firsthand with my podcast. Nobody in the world has a longer running daily real estate investing podcast. And that's an example of day in, day out, doing the gritty work. People see the outward achievements, but they don't because it's impossible to see all the sacrifices made along the way to get there. And there's quotes in this book about sacrifices. He talks about that. And I believe that one of the quotes, and I don't see it here, but one of the quotes is something to the effect of, we're either going to sacrifice, we've all heard this one before, the pain of regret or the pain of discipline. I think that's what it is. I think that's a big one for me. We've talked about already in this conversation some practical things that you could run with, like that question I mentioned before, 
If you could offer only two hours for a critical work out- outcome, which tasks would fill this limited time and some other things. Um, I also like the acorn analogy. I like that a whole lot. There's an acorn on my desk. I can keep it on my desk for 10 years and it's going to do nothing. But if I take this acorn and I plant it in the right soil and I tend to it, it magically grows into an oak tree. And an unfocused mind is like the acorn on my desk. An undisciplined person is like an acorn on my desk. But a focused mind, a disciplined person, that's like planting that acorn and making it into a beautiful, large oak tree. And there's a couple different analogies there that he talks about, but that's powerful. Just look at how many podcasts have been started, and then they end with 10 episodes. Tons. And people say, oh, well, should I really get into podcasting? It's just so many people are doing it. Not really. So many people start it. So many people talk about it. But how many people consistently do it and have been doing it for years? Not that many. It's because shiny objects and lack of focus, lack of discipline. So that's doing the gritty work consistently is something that really resonates with me. Finally, for our last clip from Joe Fairless from 2023, we'll stick with the Best Ever Book Club, where in September, we read The Catalyst, How to Change Anyone's Mind by Jonah Berger. And Joe, being the expert marketer that he is, had some fantastic insights regarding the book's tactics on persuasion, especially how they relate to taking prospects and converting them into loyal investors, something I'm sure we'll all be focused on in our businesses in 2024. How do you approach that from a marketing perspective when you've got somebody who feels like they're going to be a tough cookie to crack? Well, you don't try and crack them. You focus on the movable middle. Like the book mentions that phrase, the movable mm-hmm. middle, and the author writes, smart campaigns don't try to change every mind. They focus on swing voters who are open to facts and arguments. So identify them using data and find others who have similar characteristics and preferences, and those are your target audience. And then you do more awareness and education for those others that you described. And if they eventually end up in the movable middle, then you start talking to them. And one thing to do specifically is ask for less. Don't push for more. And that's something that the book talks about. And that's actually a really big insight for me as an apartment syndicator. Because when a potential investor speaks to one of our investor relations team members, well, the minimum investment's 25000 in our deals. I mean, that's a lot of money, $25,000. That's a big ask for a lot of people. Now, we only work with accredited investors, but nonetheless, if you're accredited, still $25,000 is a lot of money. And the insight that I got from that big changes require asking for less, not pushing for more, is that instead of focusing on investing with us during those conversations, let's focus on having them sign up for our investor portal. Because in the investor portal, it has all of the information on the fund that we're doing at that point in time. And we're getting them to take a minor step, but a significant step by joining the portal. And then they can feel free to 
look at the investment information and we'll have some other things in there to encourage them to sign up. But that was a big insight for me because it's a lot easier to have the call to action. Now, clearly, if they want to invest immediately, then sure, we tell them how to do it. But for most of them during that initial conversation, it's, so I'd like to learn more about what Ashcroft Capital is doing. So, okay, cool. Let's get you to the portal. That way you can get access to the information. And when you are ready, then you already have that set up and you can easily invest. So that was a really big insight for me. And we haven't implemented it yet. That's something that we're going to be implementing soon. But it came directly from this book. Big changes, which big changes investing at least $25,000. Now, our, our average investor invests over $100,000. But big changes require asking for less, not pushing for more. Joe, that also gives you an opportunity to be really intentional about the education that you provide and provide them value for free over the course of however long they're a part of that yeah. portal before they become investors. So providing that value and proving, showing, however you want to phrase that, I think it's a really interesting tactic. Yeah. And they talk about an example and it's a fascinating case study where I call it get all up in your kitchen in my notes, but it's the ask for less principle. They did not call it that in the book, the get all up in your kitchen. But that was just what I used to remind myself of the story where they had a consumer group call. So imagine, and Paul, I know you read the book, so yeah. everyone else who might not have read it, imagine this. Imagine a consumer group calls you on the phone randomly and says, I'd like to send five to six people into your home to categorize all your household products and do it for free. Are you interested? <laughs> like, hell no. No, I'm not interested. Talk to someone else. But they tried a different approach and they got twice as many people to say yes. So here's the approach they tried. They had that same consumer group call, but instead of asking if they could send five to six people into your home and categorize all your household products, they said, we just have a few questions about which household products that you own. Which ones you use to clean the dishes and which laundry detergent? Would you mind just answering a couple questions? Oh, okay. I would say no, but that's just me. But other people said yes. I probably wouldn't even answer the call. But other people said yes. They had two times of opt-in. And then a couple days later, for those people who answered those questions, then they called them back. And they said, now that you've answered some of these questions, would you mind if we bring some people just to categorize your household products and we'd like to complete the study? And they had two times more participants. So the takeaway here from the book is that once someone has agreed to a request, they become, in their own eyes, the kind of person who does this sort of thing. Tony Robbins talks about that. The greatest driver of human behavior is acting how the type of person you believe you are would act. So going back to that portal example for anyone who, who raises money has a portal, you get someone to join the portal and then they agree to that request. And then after that, you grow the relationship or show them more stuff within the portal. And then it's right there and they've already taken that first step. So it's powerful thinking through what is a small related task that I can get momentum with the individuals to do. And then once they do that, then they're thinking I'm that type of person that does these sort of things and they continue. 
And just like that, best ever listeners, that's it for 2023. Thank you, as always, for being a part of this incredible community. I hope you've enjoyed these roundups of some of our favorite best ever clips from 2023. We'll have a lot of exciting changes coming in 2024, so be on the lookout for those. Until then, happy new year, best ever listeners. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review, share it with someone you think could find some value in it. Also follow, subscribe, and have a best ever year in 2024. Hi, Best Ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and Best Ever content? Well, if so, join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the Best Ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.